0: Uh, the sermon will be a bit longer than you're used to, so if you have a need to go and grab a cigarette, go right ahead, I understand. "There is nothing on this Earth so ugly as the Catholic Church, nor anything so beautiful." Those were the words of the famous 19th-century convert, John Henry Newman. He was a poet a theologian, a clergyman in the Church of England who became a Catholic and was eventually made a cardinal. He paid a heavy price to become a Catholic. He was detested by those in the Church of England as a traitor and distrusted by the Catholic hierarchy. He saw the good in the church, the potential in the church, and he saw the ugly the risk of summing up his perspective, it might go something like this. Celebrate the good, giving God thanks. Chastise the bad and do penance. But at all times, move forward in hope. Sound advice in every age, though there are times like our own, when it's very difficult, seemingly impossible. During my seminary studies, a Lutheran professor of homiletics, uh, courses on how to preach, who I studied under and greatly admired, knew of the difficulties I was dealing with with the institutional church. While walking on the campus, he called out to me. And we visited. And he said, Pete, I know what you're going through. I've already spoken to my bishop. We are prepared to ordain you. You will never be ordained in the Catholic Church. They won't accept you. You are too outspoken. He knew that, in some ways at least, my Protestant roots were still deep. And I was tempted. It would have been the easy way out of all the ugliness I was going through, it would have allowed me to minister and to preach. He would have allowed me to marry and have a family and not grow old alone. He did a brave thing, and I thanked him, but declined. I believed then, and I believe today, that the Catholic Church is the true Church personally established by Jesus Christ as the necessary means of salvation and no failure, no sin, no quantity of failures and sins by any of her members can ever change that fundamental reality. I made up my mind that this is my church too. And no pope, no bishop, No seminary, no amount of ugliness was going to silence me or kick me out of my church, at least not without one hell of a fight. I believed then, and I believe now, that our church is worth fighting for, despite how weak and anemic her institutional structures have become, and to be candid, how her bishops abdicated their role as shepherds to become CEOs of Catholic Church Incorporated. More concerned with the image of the institution than dealing with the corruption within her. There are two dominant causal factors that have created the perfect storm that have led to the current crisis. Homosexuality, and the collective failure of bishops. And I realize in saying this, I shall not win many friends. In this day and age, to even say the word homosexual in any critical way is to invite a cacophony of irrational accusations of homophobia and intolerance, which are tailor-made to reduce one to silence. And yet this issue must be addressed. Why? When the crisis first emerged in 2002, the bishops of the United States spent $1.8 million to have the John Jay College of Criminal Justice do an exhaustive study of what happened It found that 81% of the victims of clergy abuse were males. Let me say that again. 81% of the victims of clergy abuse were males. And of that group, 78% were post-pubescent. In other words, the real issue is not pedophilia, the molestation of a child, as the media and many of our bishops would have us believe. Rather, the issue is clergy sexually targeting teenage males. There is a perfectly good word in the English language to describe this same-sex attraction of those abusing priests, homosexuality. Now, why are the media, the pundits, the intellectuals, the bishops, not acknowledging it? Because it is so politically incorrect, and to say it may subject you to harassment, and perhaps because the silence permits a social agenda currently now being embraced by some theologians and clergy to change the church's teaching on homosexuality. Our enslavement to political correctness poses a serious danger because it requires us to deny reality and call it something other than what it is. It ultimately results in what the prophet Isaiah warned against, calling good evil and evil good. Now does this mean that all men with a homosexual orientation pray on teenage males. No, of course not. There cannot be any doubt there are gay men and women in the church who are leading morally heroic and holy lives. No doubt there are some who are canonized saints. The damage we are dealing with was not done by them. The issue is not orientation, but the sinful misuse of the energy of one's sexuality that empowers one to love and serve. But it cannot be denied, it cannot be ignored, that 81% of victims were male, and of those, 78% were teenage males, targeted by obviously psychologically defective, emotionally stunted, and spiritually immature men with a homosexual orientation, who abused their authority and position in the church. I would venture to say that it would be the very rare priest or bishop, indeed, whose formation took place in the 70s, 80s, or the 90s, who did not encounter a homosexual subculture in the seminary. I can only liken it to living with an alcoholic relative. Uncle Joe has a drinking problem. Everyone knows it. Everyone goes wink, wink, nod, nod when his name is mentioned. But no one wants to say anything. No one wants to stick their neck out. No one wants to become the target for revealing the secret. And Uncle Joe wants our silence because that is all that evil needs to thrive There is an elephant in the living room, and everyone has to learn how to maneuver around it, pretend it doesn't exist, and manage as best one can. And if you say anything, you have the problem. That was a bit what seminary life was like. If you want to read how this sick dynamic has infected seminaries across the country, I recommend an excellent book, Goodbye, Good Men. It will make you angry to learn what was tolerated, how many decent men abandoned their vocations or worse, were denied their vocations. The deplorable state of the seminaries happened because the bishops failed all of us for decades Among their many responsibilities is the oversight of how future priests were formed. But when seminarians would complain to their bishops about their seminaries, they were either ignored, dismissed from seminary, or they were told they were the ones with the problem and needed counseling. When priests spoke up, they were silenced. When good lay people spoke up, they were treated as troublemakers, and I know of one particular case when a layperson did speak up, and the bishop of that diocese ordered that person to take a vow of silence. No joke. The elephant in the living room just got bigger, doing what elephants do, creating havoc. There are bishops who insist that they knew nothing about the homosexual subculture in the seminaries? It's possible, if they were in a coma. When I was in the seminary, an investigative committee led by Bishop Marshall of Burlington, Vermont, and then Monsignor Donald Worl, the current Cardinal Archbishop of Washington, D.C., met with students who volunteered to share their experiences. I was one of them. I took another student in with me, who was pretty much my polar opposite. We met with Bishop Marshall. At no time did I meet with or speak to Monsignor World. I expressed my concerns about questionable elements of the Seminary Formation Program, and I addressed concerns about the tolerance for homosexual acting out, and gave examples. Bishop Marshall asked my fellow student if these were true Being an honest man, he said that they were. Bishop Marshall said these were very serious. He may need to get back to me. And I said the church will pay dearly if something is not done. And he did not like that one bit. I know other students shared similar observations. I never heard from Bishop Marshall again. Quite some time later, the report he sent to Rome came back, and at a meeting of students and faculty, we were told that everything was fine. The seminary was doing an exemplary job. And the elephant got bigger. Bishops knew. Rome knew. But why didn't they do anything? Perhaps it was easier for bishops to just ignore the problem. Perhaps they thought it wasn't really that bad. Perhaps they thought the seminary faculty and the vocation directors would handle it. Perhaps they found it so pervasive, so well entrenched, it seemed overwhelming to them. Recall that back in 2013, Pope Francis was alleged to have said there was a gay lobby active in the Vatican based on what we are learning about the level of debauchery by Cardinal McCarrick that had been going on for decades under the noses of his brother bishops one simply cannot ignore the possibility that perhaps some of our bishops are actively gay who in positions of power and influence have an agenda to protect those who share their orientation and their lifestyle One has to wonder, is it just a coincidence that there are now theologians and priests and bishops who are urging that the church change her teaching on homosexuality? Is it just a coincidence? This ugliness must be laid squarely at the feet of our bishops, and those who are abused deserve whatever support they need. I am sure there are good and holy bishops valiantly trying to serve their diocese, the victims, and supporting their clergy in being faithful to the church. They need, they deserve our support. I feel sorry for the more newly ordained bishops like our Bishop Stephen. They have been sucked into a chaos that was not of their making. Still, as a body, The bishops have failed us all. Is the situation hopeless? Is the ugliness of the church just too much? Should we throw up our hands and walk away, leaving a sign on the church door, last one out, turn out the lights? No. Why? The beauty of the church is that she does not belong to the pope. She does not belong to bishops or priests or theologians or to seminary faculties. She doesn't belong to you or to me. The beauty of the church is that she belongs to Jesus Christ. And only in him, with him, and through him, we are given the power to hope. Only in him and with him and through him there is redemption and healing and the energy to move forward. And because we are graced to be members of his body, there are things that parishioners and their parish priests can do. We are far from helpless. And I shall discuss those things next weekend assuming I've not been exiled to a monastery in Siberia.